So Steph, what's the new giveaway? Yep. So this week we're giving away two of the Misfit Vapor smartwatches. So we're you know partnering with Beta, as you guys have probably heard in the past few weeks, and we're highlighting some of the best tech gear products that's out there right now. So this week, the Misfit Vapor 2. Yeah. And when I saw this watch, I didn't know anything about it. You were doing the unboxing, you checked it out. And what type of things does it do? Because it looks like it tracks just about everything or as much as you want to. Yep. So it does health tracking. It has a GPS on there so you can see where you're at. It has a lot of smart suggestions, which are really nice. So when you're doing the unboxing of the watch, you can kind of go through each screen to see the functionalities, which are really nice. Because I feel like a lot of times with these smart watches, there's a lot of... They're hard to get set up. Yeah, super hard to get set up. A lot of features that you don't even know existed until you read about it. So the smart suggestion feature was just cool because you swipe through and it's like, here's your step count. Here's your health metrics. Here's notifications and, you know, from your text, your calendar invite, all that throughout the day. Here's the weather. So really cool. And also I liked it because it has different band sizes where, you know, my wrist is pretty small and usually things don't fit my wrist. And this is just perfect because it was a nice fit, very clean, sleek and small. So we're giving away two of these smartwatches. If you go to mission.org slash giveaway, you can enter to win and get more entries by referring friends. And we'll see you there. Yes. And all your friends that you refer are going to get are world class or as I just read on Twitter, there's, we're getting some hate mail about the newsletter, but we're also, we've never got more likes before. So we, I think this is a good what sign. What hate mail are you talking about? I just got some, uh, just got some. Really? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty funny though. Should we call them out? It made me smile. What's no, their name? No, no, no I, already, I already did. Um, no, we'll, we'll have a special segment for hate mail later. But uh, yeah, so you'll get that newsletter when you sign up. You'll get uh, entries into the giveaway and you can get more by referring friends. So sign up. You can win a Vapor 2, uh, which has everything from heart rate monitoring, a built-in GPS, and an NFC chip for contactless payments. That's pretty cool. Sign up to win. And now, onto the show. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. In today's episode, we have Douglas Richards. Douglas is a New York Times bestselling science fiction author who frequently uses the world of scientific fact to influence the creation of his fictional worlds. He's authored over a dozen different novels, both for adults and children. In a time when so many works of science fiction take a dystopian view of the future, Douglas prides himself on being optimistic about the future of humanity. In today's episode, Douglas dives into his process for writing, how he aggressively researches for his books, and why the best way to break into the world of publishing is to go at it without any expectation of success. Chad and Douglas get right into it in this episode, where they are discussing how Douglas transferred his experience in the lab as a biochemist to writing his novels. I I view your books, and why I wanted to talk to you is because I view your books as thought experiments of possibilities and different scenarios that I think scientists need if they're going to be a bit more creative and aware of how their work affects culture and society. So yeah, just, just a little rant, but uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do is yeah. take technologies that potentially are right around the corner. Because, mm-hmm. And just to finish the thought I had earlier, as far out as I think I'm being sometimes, I always come back to the DNA sequencing. And remembering when I was doing it, it took days to get a couple hundred base pairs, and now they're doing billions in a day, automated. And yeah. if you would have asked me back then, you know, it was only, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, if you would have asked me, 
when will we get to the point where we can sequence a billion base pairs in a day? And I would have said never. I would have said that's not physically possible. It's like the speed of light barrier. That's right. never going to happen. And a lot of people would agree, have agreed with you. Would you say 98% if you were to hazard a guess of how many other scientists would agree with you? I would say uh, probably most. I mean, maybe they're more visionary than I was back then. But, but wow. it's just astonishing the technology that we're coming up with. So when I do think maybe I've gone too far, maybe I'm being too speculative, then I realize uh, no, because you know, so much has happened that I would have never guessed ever could have happened right. it's already here. So, so what I try to do is I speculate about you know, where technologies are heading. And then I put like you know, modern day humans with the same strengths and weaknesses as we all have. Real, real people, yeah, because your characters are real, which is like, is a refreshing change, yeah. Yeah, thank you. and it's like they're on Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put them in the epicenter of, you know, some breakthrough technology. I put them right in the middle of it, you know, either they're inventing it or they're kind of along for the ride where it's affecting them. And then I ask the question, you know, how do they react to this, this brave new world that's coming about? And and I examine the heck out of the technology, both good and bad, because every technology you know, has great things that, can, that it can do and, and, and horrible things that it can do. And, and, you know, like, I'll give one example if that's okay. Or, I mean, please, please. So, so I have a book called Game Changer, which, uh, you know, is if I had a dream of what technology that I've written about that I would like to have, uh, that's, that's the one. And, and in Game Changer, scientists have been able to implant memories into mice and you know they're doing all kinds of neuroscience is a big deal right now and they're doing all kinds of fantastic work but so it occurred to me you know if you can implant a memory you can implant you know knowledge and you know so i i think all of us have seen the movie the matrix yeah uh and in the matrix um you know there's several scenes you're, talk, you're talking about the documentary right no no um the matrix with keanu reeves Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I was talking about too. I just thought it was a documentary. I, I didn't realize it was a, a fictional. Okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's like that's a popular uh, Silicon Valley joke. Um, sorry, it was it was kind of lame. <laughs> that's uh, so you actually <laughs> have seen the movie, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, for sure. So, so in the movie, you know what I found fascinating. So you know they jack these people into the Matrix, and they don't know how to fly a helicopter. And so right. Keanu asked the, you know, the Trinity, can you fly this helicopter? And she says, not yet. And then they, they put a program and boom, they zap all this knowledge into her mind. And a second later, she can fly the helicopter. Right. It, which is not, I don't think that that's far away because so much of knowledge is really just, you know, direct experience. And as we can increasingly simulate those scenarios or those accelerated learning paths, I feel like as media becomes more immersive, this becomes easy. Like I don't even... We don't even have to wait for Neuralink or anything like that. There are already VR and AR training programs that, and uh, you know, brain electrostimulation that the military uses. Where, you know, when I was in the military, we watched people's shooting proficiency jump from being basic to being basically like an expert or sniper qualified with mild cranial stimulation. But this is stuff that's been going on for a long time, right? Like early stages of this tech, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, the, the, they've already implanted memories in in the brains of mice. mice. Yeah. You know, so so they didn't have to experience a maze. They've implanted a me, you know kind of a memory of knowledge of the maze. And so if they could do that in real life, and and so I speculated in the novel. Let's say you perfected that, then you could kind of get a PhD in a day. I mean, they you, you know you're hooked up to a machine, and just like in the Matrix, and I actually called it Matrix Learning. Yeah. They zap knowledge. You know, you get a PhD in biochemistry in in a day, and, and that's my dream because. 
you know, I have to, I, I research the heck out of every novel that I do and I read multiple books and, and, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could just get them zapped into my brain and not sure. have to do all the work, but you know, so, so everybody can see the advantages of having something like that, but then there are disadvantages as well. You know, if you can implant false memories into somebody's brain, you know, mm-hmm. get them to you know, talk about fake news. I mean, this is, you know, if, if you can make somebody actually believe something happened in their own memories, right. that, that didn't happen. And, and that's something that's, that's possible too. I mean, there's been a lot of studies where, you know, people are very susceptible to having false memories implanted uh, already. Completely. conventional technique. So, and, and how do you feel about the, uh, the fact that too, with our genetic memories that we're already carrying so many different past traumas and experiences and I don't know, I don't know much about epigenetics, but we're carrying so much from our ancestors already that we already have a lot of false memories. Like, do you think that this tech is going to be useful to maybe exercise some of the past traumas in our life or help us process them more efficiently? Because I think a lot of people are still living out the traumas of their parents unconsciously. So I think that this has a lot of applications for for healing and mental health as well. It's not just, you know, accelerated learning for biotech or anything. I think people getting healthy and happy, this tech could be involved in that. Yeah, no, no question. And, and there's, you know, there's even people that I, when I did research for this that are, you know, trying to ex- excise traumatic, conscious traumatic memories, not just subconscious right. ones, but, you know, you're in a war zone and, you know, your friend gets killed in front of you. Can you excise that, that memory? Right. But I mean, that's dangerous too, because, you know, if, you, if, if people have the ability to erase people's memory. Right. I mean, that's super dangerous also. So, so all these technologies, you know, have great advantages that can lift humanity to new heights, but also have these devastating negative consequences that are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I examine very thoroughly the technology and every single possibility, uh, good and bad. And I really have a lot of fun with that. Now, I, I tend to be an optimist. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction right now. Yes, unfortunately. And, uh, or fortunately, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's not, not my thing. I mean, I, yeah. I feel that, you know, I'm kind of like the Star Trek universe where Same. mankind is optimistic and we're, we're flying around in, in, in starships and, and we've kind of avoided self-destruction and all that stuff. And so, so I tend to be very optim- optimistic and, and not post-apocalyptic. Same. I think that the dy- dystopian media and sci-fi and, and everything has, it's just like this big ball and chain that we're still carried around. And people are just, unfortunately, who are creating this media are just terrified of the future. And I think that until we get to a place where the people that are creating the media, the stories, the new myths are optimistic, you can't expect a culture or a society to embrace science or progress or, you know, save the world or save humanity if everything's pessimistic. Um, well, you know, that's, it's fascinating that you brought that up, Chad, because, you know, my last two novels, so I wrote a novel called Seeker that had an alien probe, you know, advanced alien probe, interstellar probe landing in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And everybody says, I want to see what this technology is about. I mean, it must have a super advanced technology. And, you know, whatever country can get a hold of this probe and learn this technology might have a huge advantage. So every country on Earth basically sends teams into the Amazon to try to retrieve this thing. And, you know, because it's the Amazon, you, just because you have a bigger army doesn't really help you. The Amazon is still unexplored. Yeah, basically. it's re- really rough, rough terrain. But anyway, but in the end of that, I had a conversation where I was talking about the case for optimism. And that got such great 
feedback from my fans. And and because I had read some books, you know, The Rational Optimist, Factfulness. There's a bunch of books coming out now that really opened my eyes because mm-hmm. I tended to be pessimistic about where we're headed, you know, our potential for self-destruction. Right. And what I learned by reading these books and what I've put into some of these novels, because I think it's so important, is that, you know, as a society, as a society worldwide, people tend to think things are worse than ever right now that we're worse than ever on and it's but they've never been better yeah they've, they've never been better people are getting uh, how many people are getting lifted out of poverty every day right <laughs> part of that is you know the media and politicians have a vested interest yes scaring in scaring, scaring people and saying yep. the sky is falling they get more clicks i mean nobody gets more clicks by saying hey you know worldwide poverty 60 years ago was you know like 50 percent, and now it's like five percent i mean i don't know that i don't remember that those are the exact figures but the point is nobody gets a lot of clicks from that sort of reporting. But if they say, oh my God, we're all going to die tomorrow. Right. Um, and now it's 24-7. We're inundated with that. And so, you know, remarkably, they've done surveys and it's a huge majority think the world is going to hell, that everything is worse off on every single category when it's Jeez. exactly the opposite. I mean, if you look at racism, I mean, yes, there's still racism, but compare it to 50 years ago, when you look at right. health, longevity, uh, literacy, wealth, you know, I mean, right now we have a cell phone in our hand that does a better job of maybe five or six devices we had 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's a computer, yeah. it's a video camera, it's a phone, it's a, it's a means to search a, a, a worldwide treasure trove of information called the internet. Right. A remote control for the real world that works really well. And yeah. I mean, it's just, it does so many things in the palm of your hand. I mean, so the technology, our, our capabilities, everything has improved so dramatically. You know, the, the quality of, of, of the air, for the most part, around the world. And yet, we're so convinced that, that we're worse off than ever. So, I think these are really important books. You know, I, I recommend Factfulness and something called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, you know, really excellent books and really eye-opening because sure. as optimistic as I was before I read those books, I really did believe that, you know, I, I just didn't, I, I kind of was swept up in the, in the pessimism and, you know, gloom and doom disaster scenarios that were being peddled out there. Yeah, same. And uh, I mean, I can remember when I returned from uh, two deployments and just, you know, seeing, seeing a lot of things and traveling the world in other capacities for work and things like that. It's pretty bad outside of the U.S. There are many places where it's getting better and things like that. But for people who were born into this uh, amazing technological society that we have, I feel like in the U.S., uh, so I was born here. I was born in Maryland and I inherited so, so many technologies at birth, whether you're talking about like, you know, an open source operating system like the Constitution or however you want to view that. Like these, these things are pretty advanced and, you know, we're the wealthiest country in the world and you go outside of it you tend to come back and feel very, very uh, pessimistic if you go to, say, like a, you know, a war zone or places where you know, a dictator's in control and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's really hard to shake that pessimism. How did you shake that? Uh, you mentioned the books and Matt Ridley and everything, um, but I'm, I'm interested if you have any other strategies for people who are listening who feel 
despair, basically. No, no. I mean, it's, it's all about perspective. And so yeah. you're right about, you know, different countries outside of America. Some are still in poverty, but not like they were. And that's right. And, and also another thing that fascinates like, me. Like I, I didn't see them how they were. So <laughs> yeah. and that's the problem. We don't have the perspective. And that's what Ridley and, and the, the author of Factfulness bring up. Yeah. We just don't have the right perspective to be able to see it. And we don't even try really. But, but the bottom line is, this is really fascinating to me also, the number of wars, the number of deaths, the, number of vi- the, the amount of violence has dramatically decreased. But we, we're aware of it more because anytime somebody gets, uh, you know, gets killed, you know, obviously it makes the news. We have 24-7 news. You know, wars are horrible. And I always thought, well, how can we say that we're getting better in terms of violence when you have you know, World War II you know, where they wiped out 6 million Jews, for example, in addition yeah. to all the millions that were killed in the war. You know, how can you say that? But what's fascinating is... The numbers are dra- dropping, I mean, dropping dramatically with conflicts. And even if you count World War II, per capita, I mean, if you go back in time... To Genghis Khan only, or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When there was only 1 million people on Earth, right, and, you know, right. 100,000 of them were, I'm exaggerating, but 100,000 of them were being murdered. Right. There was like one out of every 10, and, and yet it was only 100,000. So we say, oh, well, there are millions murdered now. But per capita, never had less violence, you know, more order, fewer wars. Even in the last 30 years, um, yeah. there are far fewer wars, far less poverty. And, and obviously, it's not to say that things are perfect. We have a long way to Completely. go. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty inspiring if you look at it that way. So I completely agree. It's all about perspective. I think one of the best ways to get perspective too is you know, through real world interactions or through reading because you can lead a lot of lives through books. So what are some other books that have uh, really helped you with your craft and develop that type of mindset that is hopeful for the future? Well, um, I think, you know, the, the uh, there's one called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined by Steven Pinker. Uh, who's a Harvard professor and a, and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You know, there's a book called Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think by Peter Diamandis and, and Stephen Kotler. I said The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, Factfulness, and I can't remember the guy who wrote that one. But those are all terrific books. And I really, I mean, if you have to read one, I would read Factfulness. And if you had to read two, it would be The Rational Optimist. But really changed my way of thinking in a huge way and really you know, got me to look at the world different, got me to look at the news different. And sure, you know, the doom and gloom and the sky is falling. And, and you know, the sky never falls. That's the amazing thing about it. Every day, breaking news, the, the world ends tomorrow, and then it never <laughs> does. And yet we never remember that, wait a minute, they just lied to me a thousand times in a row. They just told me a thousand times in a row that the world was coming to an end. And they were wrong every single time. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, and there was going to be acid rain was going to destroy us all. And, and uh, you know, they can, I mean, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was going to be global cooling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the 50s and 60s uh, propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. And Malthus, um, yeah. Was, you know, and he <laughs> said that, uh, oh, we're all going to starve to death. But since that time, there's more food waste than, uh, than ever before. And like there's uh, my friend's startup is trying to allocate food waste better. Uh, so basically catching it before it comes waste and redistributing it. Um, yeah. Exactly right. So and what happens is people who who spout doom and gloom, they're the ones who become famous. So at the time of Malthus, there were a lot of people who are saying a lot of scientists who are saying, no, 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 you know, we're going to adjust. We're going to make improvements in, in crop production so that this won't be a problem, but nobody remembers their name. 
You only yes. remember the name of the person because we're, we're wired evolutionarily to pay attention to, to pay attention to bad yeah. to pay attention yep. to, to dangers that could kill us. And, and so every time these people have been wrong throughout history, every single time, and yet we continue to believe them and not the people who are saying, calm down. And there's one, there's one story that I, I've put actually in a couple of my books that I love. So I'll share it with you. It's really quick. Sure, please. You know, I, I, it might be apocryphal. It probably is, but, and I may be getting the details a little bit long, but, but let's say like- No, no worries. In 1850, New York City was growing like crazy fast. And so, you know, the city got a team of consultants to look, you know, 100 years in the future, 50 years in the future, whatever the, the amount is, and, you know, predict what, what would happen to New York City, what, what things would be like. And they came back with, these, with this dire warning that they said, if the population isn't dramatically curtailed, the population growth, in 50 years, New York City is going to be knee-deep in horse manure. <laughs> knee-deep in, in, right. in horse manure. Okay? Well, obviously, that never happened because they never could have envisioned the car. I mean, all they did was extrapolate out, oh, yeah, you know, we're getting more horses because we have a big population, and they're, you know, they're going to the bathroom on the street. And in 50 years, we're going to be swimming in it. Yeah. It turned out that in 50 years, there was none, basically, because of the car. So, so yeah, there's doom and gloom, but, but humanity is pretty clever. And, you know, I'm not saying we, should, you know, we shouldn't care and we shouldn't, you know, do our best to, to be good stewards, but we invent our way out of stuff. Completely, completely. And, and we have a track record of doing so, too. That, that's what I, where I get into a problem sometimes when I'm talking about this with people who are uh, very pessimistic is I try to cite our track record of invention and of solving many things because there, I think there are a lot of people that view humanity as kind of like they're open to the idea that humanity is a plague on the earth or that we're negatively impacting many other species, which is true. But if you look at our uh, history of life on earth, it's something like 99.9% of all species that have ever lived have gone extinct. We have somehow managed to survive. So maybe we're, we're definitely hurting in a lot of ways, but we're also kind of a miracle, right? Oh, I, I would agree. And I think a lot of that stuff is overblown. They just came out with a report with, you know, I don't remember what it was. I just heard it on the news. You know, there's a trillion species dying every second. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but, but you know, that's what it is. Yeah. It's all because of, of humans. Well, you know, the guy who did that report was also the guy, I can't remember his name, but he was like Malthus. You know, as recently as like 30 years ago, he said, we'd all be dead by now because of uh, you know, population growth and, and starvation. And now population implosion is, gonna, is threatening to ruin like Japan's economy and other, other places, right? Exactly like, right. So this yeah. guy who couldn't have been more wrong, I mean, I, I wish I had him on the tip of my tongue, but he could not have been more wrong about his predictions. He was a second Malthus, you know, big, big deal, like at a major university and everybody listened to him. And uh, he, he couldn't have been more wrong and now he's, I think, the one who's spearheading this report about how many species that are, are dying every second. I mean, maybe he's right. I have to see the research myself. Uh, but I'm saying I think it's really important to have a healthy skepticism. Uh, yeah. And it's like, even if he is correct, the appropriate response then to uh, redeem humanity would be, OK, we have to fix all these existential risks that threaten the entire planet and that threaten the entire biosphere. Like these are challenges that we can start solving now because this scientist that you're talking about in the media, they want us to worry about these epistemological cartoons, basically like this, this cartoon of reality when real reality, there are very big existential risks that we could 
start working to solve, or we could just ignore them. I feel like now is the time where we should consider them pretty seriously and get to work to solve them. No, no, I agree. But you know, it's interesting. If you go back to the horse manure example, their solution would have been let's stop the population growth because they couldn't even imagine the automobile. It wasn't like they sat down and said, okay, here are the different solutions. You know, let's invent something that powers itself that can go much faster than a horse and never gets tired. They they couldn't imagine that. They literally could not imagine that. I know it's silly to us because it's so obvious, but back then if they were to, you know, to sit down at a, uh, at a whiteboard and try to plot out all the ways they could solve this horse manure issue, that, that wouldn't have been even. Not something that was discussed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, so today we have these issues and what we're not aware of is they're going to take care of themselves more often than not by stuff that, we can't even begin to imagine right now. Yeah. So, so, you know, we spend all our time. I just think it's overblown. And like I say, it's, it's good for ratings. It's good for politicians to make their base freaked out about everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's good for social media, which knows how to addict us. Right. And, and part of that addiction is doom and gloom and, and hatred. And, and I think it's getting to be a real problem because people are believing this stuff and they're not being critical in thinking about it. You know, if you see something that sounds unbelievable, do a little research. It probably is. <laughs> right. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's the uh, Arthur C. Clarke quote, I might be paraphrasing here, where he says that if we have learned one thing from the history of invention and discovery, it's that in the long run, the most daring prophecies seem laughably conservative or something like that. And I, I, lo- I love, love, love that because, yeah, the history of sci-fi and the history of invention is one of like, yeah, daring prophecies coming true. So I, w- I would love to dive into to your journey as a writer and hear about kind of like what your origin story are. So for people that don't know, you got uh, a BS in microbiology from Ohio State, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So so I um I yeah I had a BS in microbiology from Ohio State, and then uh, I went on to the University of Wisconsin at Madison to get a PhD in molecular biology, genetic engineering. And you engineered a couple mutant viruses, I think, is, is how you like to refer, refer to them that now bear, now bear your name? Well, my initials, but I mean, I, it's close enough. It's pretty, um, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mutated viruses to study them and, and uh, you know, that was kind of my project. But then, uh, as I said earlier, I was horrible at bench research. I just wasn't patient. I mean, I loved reading about the results. I just didn't like spending a year to generate them. Pretty long time. Yeah. So I would read journal articles of other people's results and it was so fascinating. But like I said, I just didn't like the, the, the lab work. So finally I left and got a master's degree in molecular biology. And then at, at that point, my, my, my goal had always been kind of parlay molecular biology into, in, and business together because, you know, when I was deciding what to do with my life, Genentech had just, beca- had just gone public. It was the first biotech company. And I was reading all about, you know, the need for people who are really like science, but also really like business. And I like both. So I thought, what the heck? So I I had a business minor from Ohio State. But then I thought, you know what, it's better to have an MBA and a master's in molecular biology. So that's what I did. I went to the University of Chicago and got my MBA. So then I was kind of two master's degrees. And then I went into, uh, you know, the biotech business and worked my way up to director of biotech licensing at Bristol Myers Squibb and, you know, an executive at several biotech companies. So what was that process like too? Because I think that before anyone enters business, they have a lot of preconceived notions. And so I would love to hear about like when you got to, and when you rose to become an executive, yeah, what did that look like? What were some lessons? What, uh, what was that like for you? It, it was great. I mean, 
you know, what, what I learned, and, and I don't know if this is advice that I really should be sharing. Maybe I, I kind of thought that I was, you know, reasonably bright and, and, and talented and I had good credentials. But what I found early on was that I really kind of needed to, uh, to switch companies a lot to really, really move through the ranks quickly. And again, sure. I, I'm not sure people listening to this who, who want loyal employees are going to be thrilled by this message. No, 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 no. So th- this is a, a fascinating phenomenon. Like we talk about this a lot where, so yeah, we have a fast growing company. We have 10 full-time employees, several contractors. We'll probably double in size over the next couple months. And this is a message I'm completely fine with people on my team hearing. I want them to hear this message because, you know, oftentimes it's the cross-pollination of ideas. And especially in California, where we have a non-compete, you can't be scared of this because just as quickly as some people are going to leave, new people are going to come in from other companies that are going to bring with them new ideas, new information, new memes, uh, things like that. So I'm, I'm all for it. So, so I'll give you my, you know, what I tell my own kids. And that is, you know, when I was, when I got my first job after getting the two master's degrees, I looked ahead of me, like at the positions, you know, that I would get promoted into. Right. And there were guys who were, you know, 30 years old who weren't going to leave for, for decades. So how is this position ever going to open up? I mean, sure. I'm not going to have to wait 20 years before I can get to the next step. And then, then I'd look and see at another company, that exact position they were hiring. So I thought, well, I'll just do that. So I, I started at a subsidiary at Eli Lilly in the medical device field. And I was like, I don't remember what I was, some kind of analyst. You know, I talked to the HR department and they said, well, you know, if you play your cards right, in you know, 10 or 15 years, you could become manager of sales. You have to go on the sales force for three years, come back as a regional sales guy for three years, then do marketing for four years. And then in 100 years, you can be manager of, you know, marketing. Right. And so, so anyway, I ended up making two quick step ups on my own by switching companies. And like, Five years later, I was director of biotech licensing at Bristol-Myers Squibb, which was like far higher in rank than what they were telling me in 15 or 20 years I would have, would have gotten to. Completely. Yeah. And, and, and I was like the youngest director of, at Bristol-Myers Squibb that they had in, in the department. And that was another interesting, I mean, while I'm just musing, I don't know if this is any, any of this is useful. Please muse. It, it is. But um, but it was kind of fascinating. So I was doing business development, which is, um, you know, licensing, identifying new technologies and, and negotiating multi-million dollar deals. I got there and when I was at a biotech company, one of the guys from Mr. Myers Group, who was a director, came to visit us. And our chief uh, scientific officer thought this guy was brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. I met with him and, and the CSO. We met with him for, for several hours and he left the meeting. And my CSO said, that's the most brilliant guy I've ever talked to. I mean, that guy is amazing. And my CSO never thought anybody was amazing. I mean, he could meet with a Nobel laureate and call him an idiot. I mean, <laughs> he, he just, he was never impressed by anybody. So, but he thought this guy was a god. And that always stuck, stuck in my head. So six months later, I left the company to be an associate director at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And uh, this guy was in the department. And it turns out this guy has an M. PhD, where I, I only had a master's. This guy was 10 years older than me, and he was the most impressive guy that our CSO at the biotech had ever met. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I told my wife, you know, we're not going to be at this company long because I can't hold a handle to this guy, you know, and so if this is the kind of level I'm expected to be at, 
at Bristol-Myers Squibb, I'm not going to last very long. But what was, what was fascinating was it turned out over the next three years that I ended up doing more deals than kind of any of the other people combined. I, I was really successful. What I came to learn is that at least in that, in that realm, just being technically proficient, just being a genius scientist, MD, wasn't enough that in, especially in deal making and business development, you had to have a little bit of pit bull mentality. You had to be street savvy. You had to be, you know, you had to be able to play poker and chess. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, these guys were great at chess, but they weren't good at poker. Yeah. And you had to be able to be personable to both scientists and business people. So there was all these kind of things that I just happened to fit. But I said, when I first got there and I looked around, I thought, there's no way I can possibly measure up. Uh, which, so I found that to be an interesting lesson also. No, I, I think that's really important to bring up because when you really do put yourself out there and start to get serious about a career or promotions or just you know moving into a new role in business development, it, it, like imposter syndrome is going to come up if you have any type of uh, maybe empathy or thoughtful mind. So yeah, so how, how else did you go about, you know, did you feel imposter syndrome throughout your biotech career or how did you go about squashing that? No, no. I mean, like I said, I, I'm not sure it was imposter syndrome. I mean, this, this was real. This guy was an MD, PhD. Sure, sure. was like, yeah. you know, super genius. So, so gotcha, you gotcha. Know, like, but, but, but when I did my first deal and I realized, wait a minute, I'm running rings around these other guys who are smarter than me and more sure. educated than me, but I just have kind of the right set of, of things. But then when I became a, uh, an executive at a biotech company, so I left Bristol and I went to uh, become a vice president at a biotech company. And that was the same thing. I had never been a vice president before. Sure. And, and I think this is what most people do, kind of fake it till you make it. I mean, just pretend you know what you're doing until you do. Look, you know, there's no blueprint that I've seen for exactly how to do this job. But, you know, hopefully I'm smart enough and quick enough on the uptake that I'll figure it out as I go along. And, and I think it took, you know, maybe six months, three months, six months before I felt really comfortable in the role and really felt like I was vice president of business development rather than just pretending to be. Right, right. And what, what type of uh, information were you getting at the time? Were you getting, you know, recommended books or white papers or, uh, you know, people to study from your bosses? Or were you just going out and you know, seeking those folks out on your own? Who were your models during that time, if any? Yeah, I had, um, you know, I had some people who did this role in other companies that I would talk to and you know, it's kind of a funny story. And when I first started out in business development, way early in my career, I was embarrassed to, to admit that I didn't know anything because right. I really didn't know anything at that time. Same. So the days before the internet. So I would go out and I'd get these thousand page tomes on, on medicine and, you know, cause I'm, I'm supposed to be a biotech guy. I mean, it's lower level, but a biotech guy who was supposed to know all this stuff. And I didn't, I knew nothing about any of this. And I'd be in meetings. One time the CEO asked me to do an analysis of the ARDS market. He says, you know, and I didn't want to admit it. I had no idea what ARDS was. <laughs> so, so I nodded and I said, yeah. So I'm looking through this thousand page book on, on medical conditions. And I'm looking at the, uh, what is it? The index or, you know, the, I think it's the index at the end, right? Where, sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm looking through every entry in the A's and there just isn't. So like 10 hours later, I find it under the R's for respiratory distress syndrome acute. 
So ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome, but the uh, way they listed it was respiratory distress syndrome acute. Thank you very much, book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why the internet is kind of so handy. Uh, completely. The search costs of getting the knowledge from books is so high. So are, are you, uh, do you read most of your books on Kindle and uh, do you buy physical copies? How, how do you go about that? I used to buy physical, but now Kindle because right. I don't have any room in my house because I have so many books. And, you know, Kindle, you can, you can take 20 of them on an airplane. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dream, it's, it's and I'm, I'm just rambling. So stop me whenever you want. But um, no, no, keep, yeah, rambling's good sometimes. Love it. My, my dream has always been to catch somebody on an airplane reading one of my novels. I, I think that would be so fun. You know, I, I'm sitting there and the guy next to me is reading one of my novels. And I say, you know, oh, really? <laughs> you know, you're reading Infinity Born by Douglas V. Richards. How are you liking it? And hopefully the guy doesn't say it's horrible. It's the worst thing I've ever read. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm vomiting right now because I hate it so much. That would be kind of depressing. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, but it's funny because everybody reads Kindles now. So if they had a, uh, you know, a physical book, you could actually see. So I'm walking down the aisles. My wife always gives me a hard time because I walk down the aisles and I try to kind of lean and see what people are reading on their Kindle. Yeah, no, I, I do the same. I do the same thing. I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, information, acquiring habits and books. And yeah, I love seeing what people are learning. That's cool. Yeah, so I mean, especially though, it'd be one of my books. One time, one of my fans on Facebook was a pilot and he sent me a picture of him reading one of my novels while he's flying the plane. I, I hopefully it was on autopilot at the time. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but back to the internet, just to make another, uh, another point, because, you know, there are a lot of young people in the world and I'm not one of them, but you know, in my day, and I, I talk to kids at schools a lot of times I do assemblies. And in my day, you know, if you wanted to look up 20 recipes for asparagus, you couldn't do it. There was no way to find that information. Right. You know, right now you do it in a second. I mean, if I want to know the, the birth date of, you know, some inventor, I'd have to go to the library, the card catalog, find books on them, read the whole darn thing to find the birth date, you know, whatever. Right. It would take days. And now you can do it in, in a fraction of a second. It really is uh, just stunning. And, and I think, you know, the current generation just, they've always lived with it. They just yeah. take it for granted. But uh, it really is uh, remarkable. So Douglas, I would love to hear more about why you decided to leave biotech and then pursue writing full-time and what was, what was the early process like and what was a breakthrough moment where you realized I can have a career as a self-published writer and be very successful? Yeah, so I had uh, written a book called Wired while I was in biotech and it was kind of a biotech thriller. I mean, it had genetic engineering and uh, you know the premise of that one is you know you could genetic engineer so that you could attain super intelligence, like ridiculous levels of intelligence, but it turns you into kind of a sociopath at the same time. So kind of a bad combination. And so I wrote the novel and Simon and Schuster almost bought it. I had a top agent, but at the end, it's just getting harder and harder to get things published if you're not Stephen King. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just unknown authors right now. I mean, you know, with Amazon and Kindle and, and traditional publishers are having a heck of a time. Completely. I mean, they're, they're going out of business or they're, they're suffering and they're just banking on, you know, Patterson, James Patterson, you know, he's got a hundred, <laughs> he's got a hundred guys writing his novels yep. yeah. and he puts his name on them and they have their name in little print, you know, they dominate, but it's just really hard to break in. So anyway, I missed, I missed out and that was my dream. So I quit biotech for a number of years to pursue my dream of writing. So 
after years of working with an agent and almost getting a major publisher, I gave up. I went back to biotech. Then in 2010, I was reading about Kindle and I was, I mean, it was already around for a while, but I really wasn't paying attention. And one guy said that he had put his novel on Kindle and it had gone viral. And then Simon and Schuster had made an offer, coincidentally enough, and, and published it mainstream. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, I should just put it online. I mean, I've got this manuscript gathering dust and, and like 10 people in all the world have read it. You know, if I put it online, maybe another 10 could read it. I mean, right. I, kill, I killed myself to write it. So wouldn't it be fun if, if 10 people, 10 more people read it? So I put it online, I threw it online and I did nothing. I mean, I did no marketing. I did nothing. I was just hoping for a few more people and it went viral. You know, a couple months later, it was selling 60, 70, 80,000 copies a month. You know, it made the New York Times and USA Today bestseller list and was on there for five weeks. I actually printed out the New York Times and I have it framed where it's one below the help, which is a, uh, a famous book on the New York Times list. So, so then I quit biotech again and decided to do it full time. But it was kind of ironic because I had already given up. I had totally, after years and years of trying to break in, I had given up. I decided, you know, this dream is never going to happen. I'm never going to be an, an author. And then it just went viral and I, I did nothing. It just was kind of magical. So I was able to quit my job. And, and since I've, you know, I, over a million people have read my books. So it's been kind of fun. And I went to traditional publishing also uh, with my third novel. I, I, you know, got a nice hardcover deal with Tor Books and uh, experienced that world too. Do you think, uh, this is a tangent, and I don't know if you were referring to a self-published author who was able to negotiate a deal where they sold the print rights to Simon & Schuster, but they kept the digital rights themselves. They still owned that. Uh, do you feel like that deal is something that publishers are going to do in the future? Or do you think that they're closed to that, that type of uh, proposition now? They're pretty closed. I mean, I've tried yeah. that I, I, because I think right now mon- the money is in the, is in the digital. Right. I mean, there's no inventory. And so, you know, they don't want to give up on the digital rights. I mean, I'm happy to give paperback rights. I mean, right now for Wired, it was the only one I've been able to pull that off where there's a publisher who is distributed through Simon & Schuster, who we're bringing up a lot, but uh, just happens to be them, that now distributes Wired as a paperback. Yeah, for the most part, is extremely rare. They want the digital rights. And so they gave me a six-figure advance for the novel that I published with a major publisher, one of the top five publishers, and uh, they did a heck of a nice job with it. But it took like a year and a half, two years. I mean, it takes forever. Yeah. Whereas when you're self-published, you can turn around and put it online the next day. You know, you have full creative control. You know, nobody can tell you what to do. And so it's just, it's, it's, and it's actually more lucrative, which surprised me because, I mean, right now, major publishers would like to publish my work, but they just can't afford it really. Because, you know, on Amazon, you can make 70% of uh, every sale. Completely. And Amazon offers Amazon marketing services now too, which is becoming so sophisticated and and so great for self-published authors. We recently interviewed uh, Jerry Riddle, who I'm also a big fan of, big fan of yours, big fan of his writing. And he's uh, he's just does remarkable things with Amazon marketing services and his writing and promotions. I, I feel like too, there's much more room for creativity. Plus you have a direct conduit to your fans. 
you're much closer to them, I feel like, uh, when you're a self-published author. Right, so just rambling on my side, but what do you think about that? I think, you know, look, it, it's like winning the lottery, no matter how you slice it. The good right. news is, you know, it used to be the few people in New York were gatekeepers and they decided what the world read. And if you tried to do a, a vanity publishing job, print it yourself, you know, 15 years ago, people thought it was a joke. Yeah. Uh, and now that, you know, The Martian was self-published and, uh, you know, A.G. Riddle, Riddle stuff is self-published. You know, so there's a lot of people who've been really successful, including me, you know, that self-published that made a New York Times and USA Today bestseller. So, you know, that's, it's much more accepted right now, the self-published. Yeah. But by the same token, now it's just as hard to break through because, you know, if, you, if I knock on 20 people's doors in my neighborhood, 10 of them are writing a novel. Right. <laughs> there's hundreds of thousands of new novels kind of every year on Amazon. I mean, now that anybody can be a novelist, everybody's a novelist. Right. And, and mm -hmm. so to break through, you know, and everybody's advertising, everybody. So, you know, so you can put it out there and publish it. The quality better be really, really high if, if you want to break through. Well, yeah. I mean, the problem is even if it is really high, it's like winning the lottery. I, I, so I, I would push back a little bit on that because what we found with digital marketing is that generally digital marketing and advertising is something that a lot of authors and creatives are uh, opposed to. But if you look at the most successful companies or books or really any type of creative project, typically about 40% of the entire budget goes towards marketing and advertising. If you look at the most successful technology companies, let's take Amazon, for instance, uh, and they IPO'd, they raised about $54 million and uh, Mr. Bezos promptly spent half of that on marketing and advertising, which I'm sure his board wanted him to do. I think that a lot of creatives and publishers just don't want to spend the type of money required to break through. I don't think they want to invest the type of money required to have a standout breakout hit. What's your response to that? Uh, you know, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that because I, I think there's so much garbage out there first off. So, Definitely. so let me just say there, you know, of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of self-published books, I have to be honest with you, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but no, you no. Know, there, there's like a handful that are really, I mean, you know, maybe a couple hundred, whatever, a thousand that are really good. And so 99.9% .9 is really bad. And then for those, you could spend a trillion dollars. You're just not going to. Oh, definitely. There ha without quality, it's, it's not going to work. So yeah, let, let, me, let me add that caveat. The, the work has to be just incredible. And I think too, there are, you know, whether you're looking at like Robert McKee or, or any, any person that talks about writing craft or Stephen King or anyone, it's typically, I mean, how many words have they written before they have a, a breakout hit? Whether it's in a book or whether it's, they've been writing memos for years and years, uh, I feel like there's some, whether it's 2,000 hours, 5,000 or 10,000, there's a lot of preparation that comes before breaking out. You were in biotech learning things that no one else, that no other author knew no, but in, I in the world yeah, for 15 years. It's brutally, brutally difficult. You, you yeah. have to be, and you know, when I tell authors, people ask me all the time, what's the secret? How would I do it? And I tell them, look, you know, spend advertisement, try to promote it. But at the end of the day, if you failed, you know, if you spent months and months and money and it's just not taken off, right. don't keep on flogging a dead horse. Yeah. Um, write more novels. Definitely. Yeah. Keep, yeah, keep, keep moving forward. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that with early... Because I think a lot of our listeners will hear you saying lottery tickets and they'll kind of shut down. But if it's like, if you're looking at this as like a negative carry trade where you have like a lot of small losses that precede a potential breakout, uh, and especially too, if you don't have a mindset of expectation, if, you know, if you're playing a long game, if you're writing because you love it, I think you might keep going and create the uh, the seven or eight 
books that nobody cares about before you finally have a breakout. I agree. I mean, that, that's, that was the point I was going to make too. I'm glad you made it. Is yeah. that you have to write because you love it. If you're writing because yeah. you know, you, you're trying to, to make money, there are so many more surefire ways to make money than <laughs> writing. I mean, so, so that's why it's kind of a lottery. But, but, you ha- but if you don't love it and if you're not doing it for yourself, then you're making a mistake in my view because Completely. I got to be honest with you. You know, if you look at the huge successes out there, it's such a fickle business and being a, having a brilliant novel isn't enough. I mean, I'll give yeah. you a number of examples. Dan Brown, his first three novels went nowhere in the industry. The people I talked to in the industry, my agent, they were surprised that they continued to publish the guy because he sold nothing. Yeah. Then the Da Vinci code came out and all four of them were a New York times bestseller and the, and the same time period. You know, John Grisham's, his first novel, A Time to Kill, sold, you know, like 200 copies. And then when The Firm hit, it was a huge bestseller. Then you have people like J.K. Rowling, who who wrote under a pseudonym after Harry Potter, wanting to see, you know, and she wrote a detective mystery and the New York Times wrote up a big story about how great it was. And Barnes & Noble had stacks and stacks of these books and it went nowhere. It went nowhere. And it was, everybody thought it was really good. Mm-hmm. And it was written by J.K. Rowling, so you can't say she can't write. And it went nowhere, and then she leaked to the press that it was her, and it became a bestseller <laughs> overnight. And, and you know, the, yeah. the, the, the last story I'll tell you is Stephen King. He wrote under Stephen Bachman, so he wrote so frequently that a, one publisher couldn't handle him. So he used a pseudonym, Stephen Bachman, to write half his books. And it yeah. was just random which ones were Stephen King, which ones were Stephen Bachman. And the Stephen King books were all bestsellers. The Stephen Bachman books you know, did very poorly. I think that that is a really important topic to bring up is that you're go, you're going to have to build your own brand basically as a writer, as a, an author before you're taken seriously or before people can glance at a book rack and instantly pick out the one with your name on it. Uh, my favorite example too is Michael Crichton in the early days when he knew he wasn't very good, but he knew, man, could he churn out pot boilers? Yeah, he just writes under a pseudonym uh, until it's time to put his own name on the book. Uh, I think that is an interesting way to get confidence in your writing basically or or more confidence in your idea because this is you're you're putting your your heart and your soul on your sleeve here with this pursuit could you talk a little bit about how you keep a uh, a positive mindset because when i'm writing when i'm doing something you inevitably come to the dark night of the soul in i would say a lot of creative projects if not all of them <laughs> so h- how do you uh when you're writing a book and you hit a wall or something like that does that happen to you or how do you get through it if so Lots of screaming and pulling my hair out. Um, the, 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 no, it happens every time. And no matter how many times I've succeeded, it happens every... So, so first, the advice I give people writing is, you know, number one, you can't know the whole plot going in, but you're fooling yourself because it's like having a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and you don't even have a picture of what the puzzle's supposed to look like. Sure. And, and when you're putting the pieces, there's so many possibilities. You don't even know what characters you're going to have until you write half of it. Um, exactly. So you know what puzzle pieces you have to play with. So if you if you think you can plot it all out, you're wrong. You ha- there's an ambiguity. You have to wing it, no matter how carefully you try to, you know, construct it. Number two, self consciousness and doubt is the enemy of good writing. And everybody, even even I, after all these books that I've written, have have this problem. But sometimes it's better to just write a scene as fast as you can. I mean, don't worry if the grammar's right. Don't worry if, if the spelling is right. Just right, right. through it. Just to get it out. Get it out there. And you can always polish. The computers let you polish. But just, just kind of vomit it on the page. And don't doubt yourself. Don't second guess yourself. Just go with your gut. Let it flow through you. And, and you know, if you try to spend you know, five hours polishing every paragraph, 
it just ne- never flows and you, and you're not inspired. And then I also say that it's like any sport, you know, I, I play tennis. I don't go out there, open the can of balls and start playing the match. I warm up first. Yeah. And so, you know, just write and, and maybe it's an hour, maybe it's five hours into the writing, your mind finally starts flowing and you, you kind of are no, no longer self-conscious and you start writing some good stuff. But then getting back to the plot of it, I never know how the, my novels are going to end until I've written at least 50, 60% of the novel at minimum. Which makes it more fun for you, right? <laughs> it makes it terrifying. It makes, <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. It makes it absolutely terrifying. Guys. Gotcha. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. I mean, for me, the plots are everything. I pride myself on the, on the quality of my plots and the twists and turns. And so, you know, I won't proceed until I, I'm convinced that it's something really good and really good twists. And, and every time I write a novel, every single time, I get about 50, 60, 70% through, and I'm convinced that there's no way I can end it. That there's just no possible way. There's no possible twist I can give it. It's just I've painted myself into a corner, and I cannot do this. And and that, that's when the screaming starts, and the you know throwing the computer through the window. And you know my wife has heard it every single novel. And and I and I'll I'll, I'll walk the dog with her and I'll say I can't do this. I mean yeah. this cannot be done. And, and and every time I figure it out. And I'm really thrilled with how it turns out. It's like magic. And I say, wow, this is just really better than I ever could have hoped. And, and even though I've done it now, this, I'm, I'm working on my 14th adult novel because I have some uh, children's novels as well. Yeah, the Prometheus Project, which is a yeah, excellent trilogy. Thank you. So, so I'm working on my 14th uh, adult novel. And the other 13, I've always figured out every time. But even so, even on the 14th, I'm still convinced that I won't be able to. Yeah. It's really kind of interesting. So I think you just have to, uh, you know, kind of put your head down and plow through it and just, you know, have confidence that it's all going to work out. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but, you know, you've really got to, you've got to really love it. Completely. And I I think that's just a great reminder for everything is like, if you haven't found something that you really love, it's okay to keep looking and just, and keep trying new things. Because if we look back at your career and your books, you're studying just dozens of different topics and, and reading a lot. So what's your information gathering process like? Is there anything you can share there or is it just you're following your intuition of what, you know, what you're curious about basically? Yeah. I mean, so, so I subscribe to every science magazine under the sun, discover mm-hmm. scientific American science news, uh, new scientist. I mean, you know, whatever you name it, uh, I subscribe. And then, you know, on my feed on, Twitter and whatever else, who knows? There's all kinds of feeds. I, I kind of get, follow all these sites that, you know, that talk about futuristic science, you know, next big future. I don't even remember what they all are, but I get them. So when I'm on my phone, I'm getting kind of the hottest new discoveries. Like, oh, you know, scientists just discovered that, uh, you know, you can go back in time using <laughs> quantum computers, whatever. And, and so I'll read that. You know, there comes a point where there's kind of like a, it, it is more on intuition where, where there's a topic that intrigues me. And usually I won't write a novel unless I just have an avalanche of, of stuff that I think can go in it. You, you know, I. So you kind of wait for that critical mass of scientific research that says like this, that basically like confirms in your mind, you've like de-risked the project and you have a sufficient amount of like raw data, real world stuff, near term possibilities that you feel confident that your plots can 
you know, you have enough things to basically like lean on to develop those uh, twists and turns. Yeah. Okay, cool. to sustain a whole novel. So with, you know, that example you just mentioned, like, I think that's a great point to bring up because, you know, your book, I think you were referring to split second kind of, or you were alluding to it. Yeah. So I think that's a great example where, you know, you take something that is, that sounds very far fetched to a lot of people, but could you tell us a little bit more about that research behind split second? Um, it's interesting that you mentioned split second because, you know, that's probably my most successful recent novel. So, you know, it was like the, I can't remember what I was like, the 27th uh, best-selling Kindle book of 2017. Yes, that's out of uh, 6 million titles. I also have it up, but that's <laughs> but it's, it's one of my favorite books. And I think Split Second is not how I found you. I, I think I read Wired first and then I read, uh, I think I came back and found Split Second a, a while later, but it doesn't matter. Sorry. Yeah, yeah so, so, so Split Second was kind of an interesting how that came about. So, so I decided I wanted to try to tackle time travel because who doesn't love time travel? Completely. Yeah. And, but then it, I thought to myself, you know, time travel is one of the most popular genres ever. I mean, even romance are doing time travel romance novels <laughs> because, because it's just so fascinating. Who wouldn't want to go back in time and change an error, correct a mistake, win the lottery, you know, right or wrong, you know, murder somebody you hate, you know, whatever. There's so many things you can do. It, it opens up so many cool twists and turn possibilities, but it seems to me that everything under the sun has been done. And, you know, there's movies and TV and, and novels and cartoons and comics. You know, is there anything possible that hasn't been done in the last hundred years? So I, I sat down and I spent months just, I read all kinds of books on time travel. I mean, including like scientific treatises on time travel. Is it really possible? And, and I bought collections of time travel stories and I read dozens and dozens of time travel stories. And I kind of percolated and immersed myself in time travel. And my goal was, can I find something truly unique? And I thought it was probably impossible. I mean, with thousands of thousands and thousands of novels, was there really something unique? And then I found it. And it was like a eureka moment. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I'd never seen anybody handle it the exact way, same way that I did. And so the premise of the novel is, you know, what if you could send something back 45 millionths of a second? And 45 millionths of a second is, is so much less than a blink of an eye. You couldn't right or wrong. You couldn't change anything. You couldn't, you know, buy a lottery ticket. Even with the speed of computers, there's really nothing you could do in 45 millionths of a second. So why would that be useful? And it turns out that kind of my breakthrough thinking about time travel, I, at least I'd like to think, was that it's extremely useful. It could be the most useful, important development ever. It could, it could dramatically, you know, destroy human civilization or, you know, change everything just going back 45 millionths of a second, uh, period. Yeah. And, and so I wrote a novel around that. And again, you know, I'd have to give away a spoiler to explain why that was important. Yeah. And I, I would encourage everyone to check out the book too, because I mean, this is a... Uh... I don't use it lightly. It, split second was a, it really, I feel like it made me a bit more creative. It made me, cause I, I can tend to be like pretty pessimistic or cynical. And uh, after I read that book, I was, I was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed. It was not, if you like sci-fi, it's something that is um, just awesome. So in the price is right too. I mean, it's on Kindle Unlimited. So for anybody listening, you can go check it out. You can get a subscription to Kindle Unlimited for free. You can read the book. You can cancel the Kindle subscription later if you don't want it. But that's what's cool about your books too, is that, there are entry points 
that are like almost frictionless, but there's a little bit of skin in the game. You're not asking that people pay a lot of money. How do you feel about that entry point? Because I feel like that's a secret to the success of a lot of self-published authors outside of all the other things that we talked about, obviously. But I think that making these books more accessible to the broader population is, is really important, especially the population maybe outside of the US that isn't as affluent uh, in, in the rest of the world. So how do you view all those different entry points to your books? Um, do you feel like this is the first time in history where you know, books are becoming cheaper and cheaper and this is a great thing? Or what's your thought there? I mean, for me as an author, you know, it's a complicated question. For, for me as an author, it's bothersome that Amazon and others are teaching the world the book should be free. Yes, I, I agree. There's, there's book bub. There's all kinds of free giveaways all the time. I mean, if you want to find quality books for free, you can do it. And, and my books are pirated the same day that they go online. I mean, the same day you can find pirated copies. You know, so, so I get that. Uh, and I think that's great, you know, for the, for the consumer. But it comes to a point where if books truly become free, you know, I can't quit my job. And work full time. There, there has to be a new economic model. That, that's I, I completely agree that there needs to, not a new economic model, but we maybe need to make some uh, improvements to the existing one because yeah, that that's the thing where it's hard to convince people that you know paying for things and especially paying for information is a great idea when there's a glut of free information. Asking people to pay for something is a challenge. However a lot of the information that's behind a paywall is not in the larger market. So, I mean, what you're getting is very valuable because with like split second, that's a condensation of how many papers did you read? How many books did you read that went into that one? Hundreds? Not hundreds, but a lot. I mean, a lot, definitely yeah. a lot. But, but, you know, it's the same thing with, um, with anything, with software, with pharmaceuticals. I mean, people say, you know, why are you charging so much for this drug? And I was in the drug business. So, you know, I'm especially in tune with these arguments, you know, you're being raped because the pharmaceutical prices are so high. In some cases you are, but what I found in the, in the pharma business was, you know, the innovation in Europe and other places is really going downhill fast because they can't get pricing. They can't get any money back for, the, yeah. for their investment. And so, you know, you spend a hundred million dollars with a bunch of failed drugs trying to get stuff to work that doesn't work. Is that even enough to get to you know, phase one or phase two trials now? Because it doesn't it take $2.5 billion now to get a drug past FDA approvals or what's, what's the cost? I don't even know. But I mean, back, back in the day when I was in it, it was you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But yeah. that included, it wasn't just putting one drug through the clinic because you can do that a lot cheaper. It's all the drugs that fail. And so, uh, you, know, so you have to spend, and 99% of the drugs fail. I mean, it's so brutal to get a drug that works. I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, I could spend seven hours talking about that, but, but to get a drug out there. And, and so you have to recoup that investment. And yeah, once you get it through the clinic and one, you know, it might cost you a penny to make, you know, and you're charging a thousand dollars. Well, if you're saving somebody's life, a thousand dollars might be worth it. Right. But even beyond that, it's not. How are you going to get? How are you going to pay back? <laughs> how are you going to pay back investors and everyone that's devoted years, years of? Why their would life? you ever go on an, on that kind of expedition again if there's no return? I mean, right. you know, I'm going to spend a billion dollars, and then everybody's going to demand that I charge a penny. I'm not even going to do it. And and there were so many decisions that I saw made at the executive level where you know we think we can cure this drug but we'll go bankrupt. I mean, we, we can't do it. We, there's not enough to, to get, you know, enough money to make it worthwhile. So it's easy for people to say, wait a minute, this drug costs you a penny to produce, you know, you're screwing us. But the truth of the matter is 
if they didn't charge, and that's why Europe isn't being innovative anymore in, in drugs because they can't afford to. So back, back to books. You know, yeah, authors, you know, if they want to work full time and make a living out of it, you know, they have to make some money. So, so anyway, the books, Amazon's teaching everybody the book should be virtually free and they're super cost sensitive. When I put Wired out, I priced it at 99 cents mm-hmm. uh, because my feeling was I'm not Stephen King. As a no name, putting an unknown book into a billion books out there, my only chance was word of mouth. My only chance was that Wired turned out to be really great and Everybody talked about it and it got great word of mouth. So I figured I'm going to, I mean, if I could pay people to read it, I would do that. And, and, and then if it stunk and, and, you know, people hated it, then I would learn that pretty quick. But if people loved it, they would tell their friends and maybe it would go viral the way it did. So I priced it super low. After that, I priced my novels pretty much at $6.95 or $6.99, whatever. And that's way high. I mean, most self-published authors, even really successful ones, are at $2.99, $3.99, $4.99. But what I was astonished by is the price sensitivity. So yeah. when I published the novel through Tor, the major publisher, they priced the Kindle at $9.99. Uh, and, well. and I had people writing to me who said, I'm a real fan of your work. You're my favorite author. But there's no way I'm paying $9.99 for a Kindle book. And I was thinking to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, you spend, you spend $10 on coffee in a day and, and you're not willing. I mean, I'm giving you five hours of entertainment that I killed myself for, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you, you're really. Well, especially too, like, I mean, your books are fiction and your term thrillers, but you're learning about science throughout the process too. So it's like, you know, you're paying nine ninety nine for sci- a new science magazine. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and that's the only one, by the way. I mean, like I Say they're in Kindle Unlimited, so you can get them for free. And then there's, you know, they're mostly $6.99 and some are a little bit less. But that just was stunning to me that people who said, I'm their favorite author, and yet they're not willing to spend an extra $3, that just stunned me. <laughs> um, and, that, and it's only gotten worse since then. Do you feel like that's because they don't connect with you as a person yet? Or because they've just read your books, maybe they don't have as much context with, you know, who you are and they don't understand how much opportunity costs went into the book maybe, or? I don't think, I'm not sure that's it. I think that they've just been trained. I mean, they just see there's all these books. That information should be free. For the books should be free. And by yeah. God, you know, I love you, but I can't believe, you know, you're trying to take advantage of me. And, and you know, by the way, I didn't set the price. I mean, I would have set it at six ninety nine, but once you sell your rights to a major publisher, they decide. So, I mean, I, I wrote them back and I said, look, I sell it cheaper, but I can't. I mean, it's not, it's out of my hands. So, you know, write the publisher, <laughs> but um, it's getting to be, yeah. Yeah. Pricing. I would say that if you're a, a new author, you know, price it at 99 cents, but then there's a counter argument to that nowadays. And that is, you know, you get what you pay for. Yep. So if people think it's too cheap, they think it's probably going to be garbage. You know, they may not buy it. So the example I give is, you know, if you, had, if you had the best wine in the world and you put it in a cardboard, you know, container and, and charged a dollar, people are going to think it's horrible wine. You know I mean? No matter how good it is, you know, if you're selling it that inexpensive, they're going to be suspicious that it's not very good. Yes. I, yeah, I completely agree. I think there's uh, author earnings has some studies and then Amazon has some data around price elasticity. Don't they show that $4.99 seems to be the sweet spot where people still perceive it as a uh, a more 
bespoke or a more elite item or you know, I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is here, but basically like $4.99 is like an optimal price point. What do you think about that? As opposed to like $9.99 where book sales will fall. Um, oh, oh, no, no, no. I mean, like, I mean, Amazon has a tool where you can go on and look at books like yours and they recommend a price and they always recommend $3.99 or $4.99 for my books. I, gotcha. keep them, I keep them at $6.99. So the question is, why do I do that when, you know, the optimal income for me would be at $3.99 or $4.99? Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why do you? Yeah. Why, why would I do that? Because, you know, what they're saying is, yeah, you lower the price, but you sell so many more that it would improve your your income. Basically, a couple of reasons. One, I like the idea of being a little bit more premium brand because I really, you know, I'm sure every author feels this way, but I kill myself writing these novels. I mean, I pull my hair out. I'm throwing things through the window. I'm, you know, constantly researching. I mean, it just, it's a brutal agonizing. I mean, I'd like to say it's always fun, but a lot of times it's just brutal, the process. And, and, I feel like I've got a pretty loyal fan base and I feel like I'm, you know, I can be a little bit more of a premium brand, but number two, I feel like Amazon does promotions on your stuff and mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. do promotions like BookBub. There's other, I won't go into all of them, but there's a bunch of promotions that people can do. You basically have a buffer because they're going to try to put it to three ninety nine or four ninety nine, anyways. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I'm saying that the higher price you have, the more people want to, do a promotion on your book and sell it at a lower price. Sure. Amazon will uh, you know, write me and say, hey, I want to do a monthly, a monthly deal. They call them mm-hmm. monthly deals or, or a daily deal. You know, and then they advertise the heck out of them. But my feeling is if you, know, if you price your book at 99 cents, Amazon's never going to do a deal because they can't price it any lower than that. Right. You can't have partners who are incentivized to help and make a little bit of money through affiliate deals or anything like that if you don't have the, the margin, right? If you don't have a big enough margin, you can't split it with partners. Well, I'll said, or even forget the splitting. I mean, but right, you have to, you know, you know, when Amazon does a deal and they advertise it, they want to say, look, this is 80% discounted. Yeah. You know, I'm, this is 80% discounted. What a deal you're getting. And so if I price it lower, they can't really brag about the discount as much. Right. So I, you know, it, it's a complicated uh, analysis and, and I'm not even sure I, I probably would be smart to, to lower it, but I've been kind of similar so far. I, I'm not so sure too. I think that especially with your clientele who reads your books, I think that it's, it's, this is an awesome strategy. And I mean, how many, you sold millions of, uh, millions of books. So something is working really, really well. Douglas, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being really generous with your time. We're going to have to do round two. I have a hard stop coming up. This has been a blast for me. I'm a huge fan of your work. I recommend all of our listeners go out, get your books, read them, whether they're six ninety nine or free on Kindle Unlimited, they're all worth it. So yeah, thanks so much for your time, Douglas. And uh, is there anything you would leave our listeners with, whether it's a final thought experiment, call to action, or uh, any final thoughts? Not, not really. I, I mean, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to chat with you. And it's always fun to talk to somebody who's read my, my work. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think for once I'm at a loss for words. I, <laughs> I, I don't really know what final thought to leave anybody with. But you know, if you ever want to do another one of these again, uh, this has really been fun. Um, cool. So I just let me know. Likewise. And uh, I'll let you get back to writing because that's what uh, we need you to do among other things. So thanks, Douglas. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Chad. Bye-bye. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. 
Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.